Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the wonderful privilege that it is to open up the scriptures this morning, and I would ask for your help in communicating them, uh, that what is said here would be true and honoring to your great name, as we have already sung. We rejoice in the privilege of lifting our voices together, and now we anticipate hearing from you in return through your word for our good and for your great glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please take your Bibles and open them to Romans chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 22 through 33 this morning. Romans 15, 22 to 33. I believe it's page 950 in the Pew Bible in front of you, so if you did not bring a copy of God's Word, you can grab that and open it to page 950, Romans 15. As I give you a moment to find your place, I will remind you that this is God's inerrant, infallible word, every word individually and all of it together. It is a closed canon. There is no more revelation being given. There is no more inspired writings to be collected. It is all complete for us. This is God's Word. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessing, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings." When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I might be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem might be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is God's Word. Paul is getting very personal now as he begins to wrap up final lines of the letter written to this amazing church in the very center of the civilized world at that time, the city of Rome. And Paul has long desired to visit this city and to visit this church, 
and to encourage them and to be refreshed by them and to partner with them in the further advance of the gospel all the way up into Spain. And as we said last week, Paul had been intensely preoccupied with the importance of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, the group that he believed that God had singled out for him to focus on. And so because the preaching of God's word and evangelism was of a central priority to Paul, it actually delayed him from accomplishing the other goals he had, namely visiting the church in Rome. But now, as he wraps up the letter, we see that his attention is turning. Uh, This is a very personal part of the letter for Paul. Uh, This would be Paul's support letter if he were writing you in order to provide him with help on his mission. It tells you what his goals are, it tells you who he's trying to reach, it tells you why, and it tells you how to pray for him. We're coming into the summer season where you're going to start getting letters from young people that are traveling around the world and they're doing short-term missions. And it usually follows that pattern, doesn't it? They tell you uh, who they're going to go and speak to. They're going to tell you what the goal is for the trip. They're going to tell you how to pray for them. And then they're going to ask you for some support. Well, Paul was no different. That's what he does here. This is Paul's prayer letter. And in it, what I want you to see is that he does focus on these three very important subjects throughout this last section. So if you're taking notes, you can just look at these three words to kind of hang your thoughts on. The first one is preaching. That's his main priority. It's preaching. And that preaching includes the preaching of the gospel. Uh, The second is the poor. This is who he is going to address prior to making his trip to Rome. And then after he talks about the poor, he is going to address the issue of prayer. How do you pray for him? What is he asking? There are three things in particular that Paul is going to ask for, and we'll talk about it when we get to that section. So preaching, the poor, and prayer. Let's start with preaching. Uh, Paul says here at the very beginning that, that what has prohibited him from coming to Rome was this, and the this, or the these things, the antecedent of that, goes back into the previous section, namely the preaching of the gospel all the way up into Illyricum, up into the very northwestern part of the area where Paul believed that God had called him to bring the gospel. And so he says, this has been what has distracted me. Uh, This has been what I've been focusing on instead of being able to come to you and minister to you. Now, the reason that it's important is because Paul has a priority here. He's got a plan. Uh, Ministry is not something that is done haphazardly. It's not something you just carelessly engage in. He says, I've got a plan. And that plan is to go and to finish all of the ministry in this region. And when I do, I'm going to be able to go to Rome. Now, let's ask a question here. What does it mean for Paul to have preached the gospel everywhere in that region and accomplished that goal? What does that mean? Does it mean that every single individual in all of that region of the ancient world had directly heard the gospel themselves? It can't be, because there's no way that that could have been accomplished. What it means is that according to Paul's plan that he was given by God, he was able to establish gospel-preaching churches in all the major cities, in all of that region, so that everybody who would travel into that city for the regular required gatherings around the Jewish calendar and the synagogue, would be able to hear the preaching of the gospel. And therefore, he had accomplished the work in that area. He had done what God had called him to do. 
And now, as a result of having done that, having been temporarily hindered from coming, he says, now that there is no room for any more of that kind of work, and since I have longed for you with a very strong desire. Notice that word. He says, I've longed for you. It's the same word that Peter uses when he talks about longing for the milk of the word the way that a baby longs to be fed. That sort of craving, that desire, that, that insatiable need. He says, I've got that kind of insatiable desire to come and visit you. Do we love the church that way? I mean, these were strangers. He hadn't met them yet. He only knew a couple of people that had gone back and forth from Rome, and yet he says, I've got the same craving, desire to be with the church in Rome that a baby has when they're hungry. We've got some babies in the room here. I know that because I hear them from time to time. And, and, and they could get hungry during my sermon, believe it or not. And you're going to hear them. You know why? Because they want something. They have a craving. They have a desire. They haven't yet learned how to remain quiet about it. They haven't become like us adults who can look like we're listening <laughs> or who can just rest our eyes. They have to have it, and so they make the noise. They, they crave it. And Paul says, i got to have it. I've got to have fellowship with this church. I've got to get there to Rome and meet you. I so desire to be with you, my fellow Christians, that, that it's consuming me. And so he's torn between this incredibly strong desire to bring the gospel to the Gentiles who have never heard and an equally strong desire to be with the church. And so as he's pouring out his heart to these Roman believers, he says, now as a result of the work having been accomplished, I'm going to come to you. And I want to see you in passing as I go to Spain. My goal is to get up there. That's going to accomplish the work of spreading the gospel. But I'm also going to stop along the way and I'm going to be with you. And we're going to fellowship together. And I'm going to be refreshed by you. Because man, there are times where you just need to get together with other believers and enjoy their fellowship. You're not working. You're not struggling. You're not fighting. You're not debating. You're not battling false doctrine. You're not healing rifts between people. You just want to be with other believers who love Christ and recharge you. Do you have relationships like that? Let me ask you this morning. Do you have relationships like that? That's why we have home fellowship groups. That's why we gather here earlier than when the service actually starts. Do you know, do you, do you know this, by the way? Do you realize you're allowed to come here before 10.30? No, you are, I promise. Like, nobody's at the gate. I'm sorry, uh, you can't come in here until 10. No, you can come here early. And you can have coffee. Because it's the one drug Christians can all take together. <laughs> and you can have a donut. Even, like, I don't eat donuts, but if you love donuts, you can have a donut. You can even bribe your kids with donuts. You can say, hey, I know it's kind of early, and I know it's hard to get out of bed and get ready for church, but they've got donuts there. And if you're like, yeah, that works for kids, I'd say, yeah, that works for grown-ups too. <laughs> Fellowship with each other. Get to know some people here. Come to a 9 o'clock Sunday school. Stay afterward. Grab somebody you don't know and go out for lunch together. Find somebody in this room that you don't have any 
relationship with yet and enjoy their fellowship. No agenda. Just get to know them as a brother or sister in Christ because you realize that if they are in Christ, you're going to be spending all eternity together. It's going to be one big corporate gathering. And I believe that that what Paul is so moved by here is he gets a glimpse of how wonderful it will be in the kingdom, in the new heavens, in the new earth, in glory when everybody is finally together and the work is done. It's okay, beloved, to enjoy fellowship without an agenda or a job. Just be with people that love the Lord and love each other. Now, Paul says, in his effort to go to Spain, where all the hard work is going to be, that he wants some time of refreshment. And he's going to get it there with those believers Now, you might say to yourself, if uh, Paul is so focused here on preaching the gospel, and if Paul is so convinced, as he has shared in the other places in Romans, about God's sovereign control over all of redemptive history, and, and, and if Paul believes what he has taught earlier, that The Lord has ordained before the foundation of the world all who would come to the knowledge of Him. Why is He pressing in so hard on preaching and evangelism? I mean, if Paul is a good Calvinist, why is he concerned about evangelism? And if you're a good Calvinist and you're saying, I'm a good Calvinist, why should I worry about evangelism? Well, let me explain to you why. Because were it not for our understanding of the doctrine of election, everything that we strive to accomplish in evangelism would be utterly futile. Now, I know I've referenced this before because the sticky note was still in the book. But I will, I will bring it to your attention again because it's one of my favorite books on evangelism. It's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. And in it, He makes this amazing summary statement about why you strive in the area of evangelism while resting in the sovereignty of God. He says this, the sovereignty of God in grace gives us our only hope of success in evangelism. Quoting him, some fear that belief in the sovereign grace of God leads to the conclusion that evangelism is pointless since God will save his elect anyway, whether they hear the gospel or not. This, as we have seen, is a false conclusion based on a false assumption. But now we must go further and point out that the truth is just the opposite. So far from making evangelism pointless, the sovereignty of God in grace is the one thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless. For it creates the possibility, indeed the certainty, that evangelism will be fruitful. Apart from it, there is not even a possibility of evangelism being fruitful. Were it not for the sovereign grace of God, 
Evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise that the world has ever seen, and there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel. He doesn't leave you wondering where he stands on the matter, does he? Does a high view and understanding of the sovereignty of God lead to a weak and anemic desire for evangelism? No, the opposite. A high view of God and a clear understanding of the doctrines of grace compel you to evangelism because you understand that it's a part of God's sovereign unfolding of redemptive history to include evangelists in the bringing together of the elect and the preaching of the gospel. Beloved, may today be the day where you renew your desire and understanding to be a part of that supremely important work. Now, Paul moves from preaching to his focus on the poor in verse 25. He says, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. Now, this word bringing aid, how it's translated in my copy of the Scriptures, is the word that we get deacon from. He is saying, I am, I am serving as a deacon I'm serving as the one who is bringing what is needed to those who are in need. Paul the apostle, Paul the preacher, Paul the evangelist, Paul the guy who should have somebody else do this for him, you might say. Paul Paul the one who should focus on the more important things like preaching and evangelism. He says, no, it is important to me to arrange for the collection of from the other churches that I might be able to be a trustworthy messenger to bring it to those who are suffering in Jerusalem. And so he is going to go and bring a monetary gift to the believers in Jerusalem. And Paul, as you know, would go from church to church and he would tell them that you need to store up a certain amount and give it. And he wasn't saying, store up a certain amount and give it to me. He was saying, you store up a certain amount every week, as you have decided to do, in connection with how much you you earn, and you set it apart for this special purpose. And when I come around, I will will pick it up and I will deliver it. And he even tells the Corinthians at one point, I'm going to come and I'm going to pick it up because I don't want to see it fall prey to covetousness. He says, I know it's all collected and it's all right there and you've all got it, but I'm actually going to show up and I'm going to make sure you bring it and you give it because if you've been storing it up and it's there at your house, it's not that difficult to imagine that the time might come where you look at that and go, you know, I really have another purpose for that. Isn't it always the case that when you're preparing to give, when you've stored up this money for something else, isn't that the time when the car breaks down? or the kids need their wisdom teeth taken out, or the bill comes from Master's University, (laughs) or the plumbing needs to get done and the entire main line going out to the main sewer of the city has to get relined. I'm just making those four up since I don't know if they happened to me this week. (laughs) 
Isn't it always the case? And Paul says, I I know what you're going to think. You're going to think, uh-oh, look, that money's there, and I know I had set it apart for this other purpose, but but I'm going to use it now because I have another thing. I didn't realize this was going to come up. Paul is encouraging these churches all around his ministry circuit to raise funds. And you might think, is that going to be burdensome for them? No, he says when you give, you give out of joy. He said it's a delight to give. He talked in Romans 12 about the spiritual gift of giving. Those who have the spiritual gift of giving give with great generosity and with joy. That's why he says that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Now, I know sometimes pastors use that as a way to raise funds for things. And some of the greatest pastors in all of church history were guilty of this. One of my favorite stories is about Charles Spurgeon. In fact, he used to be known for raising money from the church all the time. He, he got his salary from a wealthy person who was his patron. The church didn't give Spurgeon a salary. But he would go to the people and he would say, I'm going to raise money for these very important missions. And the story is told that at one point they were getting a little frustrated with him because he was going on and on and on about raising money for this particular mission. And so one day the church actually conspired together to give nothing. And so when the time came for the gathering of the offering, the deacons went out and they passed the baskets around and they all came back together. And as Spurgeon looked down at the empty basket... He is said to have prayed, Dear God, thank you that the skin flints in this church have at least returned the baskets. <laughs> now, Paul was not writing to a group of Christians who were wearied by his relentless appeals for money. They were giving cheerfully, and so he gathers up this gift. And he says, I'm going to go and I'm going to bring it to the poor because, verse 26, in Macedonia and Achaia, they were pleased. It gave them joy to make a contribution for the poor among the saints. They were pleased to do it. And, and you might say, well, then that's enough because all God really cares about is that you have a good attitude. And Paul says, it's important, but there's more. As a matter of fact, not only were they pleased to do it, But that's good because they owed it. Look what he says. Indeed, they owed it to them. It's the word for debtor. It's the word that was used back in chapter 114 and chapter 8, verse 12. The idea of being compelled, of being under obligation, of being under a debt. You say, wait a minute, what does that mean? How are the Gentiles debtors to Jewish people in Jerusalem? And the answer, he says, is this, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessing, they ought, and it's the same word again, they are debtors also, and should be of service to them in material blessings. If you have received through being grafted into the covenant originally given to the Jews, spiritual salvation as a Gentile, then you owe it. 
to those Jews to help provide for their material needs. The old King James translated their carnal needs. Don't be mistaken. There's nothing carnal about this. He's not saying, yeah, let's bring the Gentiles over to teach the Jews some carnality. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the material things, the, the, the non-spiritual things, the, the stuff, money, food, various needs have to be met. There was a, a, a famine in Jerusalem. It was prophesied to them, and they knew it was coming, and there was a famine, and this wasn't persecution. This was just that everybody was poor. Everybody was struggling. Jerusalem was starving, and so Paul says, I'm going to take money from these Gentile churches, and I'm going to go and bring food to starving Jewish Christians. Why is that important from Galatians 6? Remember the reading earlier? Why, why are we connecting it to that? Because Paul says, if you do good to one another, you do good especially to those, verse 10, of the household of faith. You see, Christians care about Christians. Doesn't mean we don't care about anyone else, but primarily and predominantly, our heart's desire should be to care for the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ, whether it's spiritual or material. That's why we do missions trips to places like Peru and Paraguay and Argentina, and we bring the gospel and we bring the relief that is needed. That's why we do food packing events like we did in the gym where we all get together and we package thousands of meals. Not because that's a slant towards some social gospel, but because that's part of the gospel ministry that a healthy church does in caring for other believers. It's one of the ways that we can open up a, a dialogue and an opportunity lady came into the church this week, and she asked me through a person here at the school who was able to interpret for her if we taught English classes here. She heard that there was a church that taught English classes, and, and I said, no, we, we don't, um, and I don't know where they do, but I'm sorry, I can't help you in that area. And she left, but I got to thinking afterwards, just think of all the opportunities you have to do good for people, to help them, to encourage them, and in so doing, forge a relationship that opens up a door for the gospel. How often are we taking advantage of those relationships that God has given us at work or with family and friends in order to provide in a winsome, in a loving way, the truth of the gospel of Christ? Paul says this is one of the ways you care for the church, their material needs, and as that church in turn reaches out and ministers to others. I know you've all been praying for some of our friends and missionaries who are in Kiev, opening up their, their church and Irpine Seminary to people who are desperately seeking shelter and food and safety. I know those dear brothers there, I've known them for many, many years, and in God's kind providence, most of the neighborhood around them has been leveled, but Irpine Seminary stands, and they're feeding people, and they're caring for them, and they're showing them the love of Christ. You see, there's so much good that can be done through caring for people and doing it in the name of Christ and the proclamation of the gospel. People have a long memory when you treat them kindly. Well, he says you owe it to them. And in so doing, you are serving them. 
with material blessings. The same word for service, by the way, in verse 27 was used by Paul in the previous section. That word we get liturgy from, that, that clearly uh, priestly service almost. You, you are doing something for them in, in a way that is almost an act of religious devotion to God. And when, therefore, I have completed this, I have perfected this, I have finished this, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So Paul says, I am concerned here with the preaching, I am concerned with the poor, and now, he says, I will turn my attention finally to prayer. He has discussed preaching of the gospel. He has explained what has delayed him. He has discussed the importance of ministering to the poor, especially those who are of the household of God. And now I want you to notice that he's going to give us a lesson on prayer. I find this particularly interesting because Paul is writing in such a way that the reader will draw their eye in a finer and finer point towards the conclusion here in verse 33. He is making a statement in verse 29 about what he knows to be true. He is making an appeal in verse 30 based on that knowledge. And then in verse 31, he is saying why. And in verse 32, he is saying why. So here is the knowledge leading to an appeal, leading to an explanation. It's brilliant and clear. Verse 29 begins, I know. It's the Greek word for objectively knowing something. I, I frequently distinguish these words in the original versus the words in the English language because in the English we just say no. In the original, it's either I know objectively or I know experientially. I, I, I know something in my mind or I know something because of my experience. And, and in this case, Paul, though he would have experienced it too, is saying, I know this in my mind. I, I know this truth is objectively verifiable. <laughs> There's no way that anyone can refute it. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. It's like God has already revealed that to him. And this is going to be an overflowing affirmation to them. Remember earlier when he says, I know that you are good, that you are overflowing with goodness, and that you have all of this wisdom? Those are the blessings. And the word here is translated almost everywhere else in the New Testament, catch this, as the word flattery. So, Paul is not saying, I know I'm going to come, and man, I am going to flatter you like you've never been flattered before. Flattery is lying. You realize that, right? Flattery is just lying. Proverbs indicts a flatterer, puts them on one of the highest levels of wicked person to avoid. Paul is not a flatterer, but he uses the word almost in hyperbole to say, this is going to be so overwhelming, the blessing, you're going to think I'm almost flattering you with it. Because I'm so excited about what God is doing at the work in Rome. 
And so he pours out his heart to them, and he says, I know this, and therefore, verse 30, I am going to appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. He's sort of heaping up the criteria here, very similar to what he does in Philippians chapter 2. Our Lord Jesus Christ, focusing on the royal headship and lordship of Christ, the love of the Spirit, that's a unique love. It's not, it's not the love that the Spirit has for you. It's the love that the Spirit gives you to give to somebody else. It's spirit love. It's a quality of love. And so with this blessing, it comes by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ with that special love from the Spirit. And he's going to appeal to them to strive, a word that only appears here, literally translated, agonize with me, that you're going to agonize together with me in your prayers to God. It's hard work. He says, I want you to keep praying, not just casual prayer, but deep, earnest prayer for me. Have you ever struggled with praying for an extended period of time? Last week, we addressed the issue of, of coming to the Lord with only petitions and how that can sometimes make for a weak prayer. Coming to Him only with your list of things you want or need. And then I mentioned how Martin Luther had written that little book for his barber back in 1535 and teaching him how to pray. And we prayed through the Ten Commandments. I told you there was two other ways in which he taught him to pray. And one was the Lord's Prayer and the other was the Apostles' Creed. And so this week, I thought I would just share with you another little piece from that short book that he wrote for his barber. Remember, this was for uh, Master Peter Beskendorf, 1535. Talk about a cool client to have if you're a barber, Martin Luther himself. And when you express to him your concerns about being able to pray well, he writes you a book and explains how to do it. Now, in the book, he says, when it comes to the Lord's Prayer, you got to do it like this. You go through the Lord's Prayer, and you expand on this. Not only do you say it, but you also think about it. And I, and I just happen to be moved by this one section at the very beginning, where he says, after you have prayed, hallowed be thy name, he says, say this, say, yes, Lord God, dear Father, hallowed be thy name, both in us and throughout the whole world. Destroy the root out of the abominations, idolatry, the heresy of the Turk, the Pope, and all false teaching and fanatics who wrongly use thy name in scandalous ways and take in vain your name and horribly blaspheme it. That's great. Pray against false teachers that teach fanatical things. He goes on, they insistently boast that they teach thy word and the laws of the church, though they really use the devil's deceit and trickery in thy name to wretchedly seduce many poor souls without, uh, throughout the world, even killing and shedding much innocent blood. And in such persecution, they believe that they render thee a divine service. And so he says, dear Lord God, convert and restrain. Convert those who are still to be converted 
that they with us and we with them may hallow and praise thy name, both with true and pure doctrine and with a good and holy life, and restrain those who are unwilling to be converted so that they may be forced to cease from misusing, defiling, and dishonoring thy holy name and from misleading the poor people. Amen. You see, Luther had a pastor's heart, and nothing fires up a genuine shepherd and pastor than seeing people misled by bad teaching. And if you don't believe me, come back in a couple weeks at 9 o'clock, and I'll show you what that looks like. You see, when we pray and when we address a holy God, it should never be something done thoughtlessly or carelessly lest we be at risk of violating the commandment that says, you shall not use the Lord your God's name in vain. To protect them from that, to protect them even from foolish prayers. Paul gives two hinna clauses here, two in order that clauses that explain how to pray on his behalf. Verse 31, you could translate this in order that. I prefer to translate it that way because it shows you what's in the original. In order that or so that what? I may be delivered and then I may be acceptable and that I may be refreshed. Those are your three prayer requests. To be rescued, to be received, and to be refreshed. They are all listed for you there. The word be comes before the word be delivered, be acceptable, be refreshed. Let's look at them. Number one, in order that I might be delivered. Delivered means to be rescued. Rescued from who? Rescued from the unbelievers in Judea. Now, this is actually literally the word the disobedient ones. This is how Paul describes unbelievers in his epistle. The disobedient ones that are in Judea. Those who have not believed the gospel. The worst disobedience is a disobedience relative to the gospel. Christ has called you to obey in faith the gospel. And the gospel is the belief in the finished work of Christ and his righteousness imputed to you and your sins imputed to him. And so the ultimate act of disobedience is to disobey the call to believe that. And that disobedience reveals that a person has not been regenerated. Because the first act is to be regenerated by God, by His sovereign will, that you might then believe and be converted and repent. So the unbeliever here is the disobedient one. The disobedient one is the one who has yet to put their faith in the gospel. Now, I do need to say briefly about the doctrine here. Obedience, what does that mean? How do you fit obedience into your walk with the Lord? How, how do you understand the difference between being justified by faith and living a life of holiness? I know oftentimes we use the term sanctification. 
But that word is really used in the Scriptures to talk about a position that you now have. You have been moved from one place to another. Uh, You have been identified as being useful for God. Not because of anything you've done or even been trained to do, but because He has made you that way. He has sanctified you, set you apart once and for all. When we talk about being sanctified, we, we really are talking about what it means to be matured, to be made holy. Far from lowering the standard, we really elevate it. Are you called to obedience? Yes, you are. Are you called to personal holiness? Yes, you are. But that holiness and that obedience is the result of being sanctified, set apart, filled with the Holy Spirit, and empowered to do so. So let us remember that sanctification is the decision on God's part that as a consequence of being justified, we are now in a place to be used by Him as we're filled with the Spirit and obey His will. But here he says to those who are unbelievers, may I be delivered from them. Secondly, that my service, again the word for deacon, that my deacon service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. He says, I want to be useful to them. I want them to accept it, to receive it, to joyfully take from me this monetary gift that I'm going to bring them. And I would draw your attention to the word saints. The word saints the holy ones, the holy ones. How are we described in the Bible? We're described as holy ones. And that is the same root from where we get sanctification, the set-apart ones, the made holy ones. He says, I want this gift to be acceptable to those who have been made holy and set apart in the eyes of God. So that, thirdly, By God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed, literally with you, refreshed in your company, refreshed with you. A word that appears only here in the New Testament, literally translated, that I can come to you with joy and pause together with you. Imagine that apostle ever moving, ever traveling, ever preaching, ever teaching, ever evangelizing from place to place in the midst of all kinds of trials and difficulties. And he says, you know what my prayer is? My prayer is that by God's kindness, I will be able to come to you and that together with you believers in Rome, we can just pause together for a while. Do you ever just want to pause? You ever find life is going so crazy that you just want to press pause. You just want to stop for a minute. This is how Paul describes it. Isn't that a wonderful way of describing it? I just want to to push pause for a minute on all of this, but be intentional. I want to do that with you. And so pray that that, that God would be kind to answer that prayer, that, that he would protect me from the people in Jerusalem that want to kill me, especially the Jews, that these poor Jews would receive this generous gift and that it would be a blessing to them, and that I would be able to make it up to Rome, and that when I'm there, I can just pause for a while, and I can be with you and enjoy your fellowship and your company. Paul wants to teach them about preaching, about the poor, and about prayer. Now, I would say one more. And I'll make it a P, because all the other ones are P. 
How about providence? Let's ask the question, did um, Paul ever make it to Rome? Yes, he did. Did Paul get to Rome the way Paul was thinking he would get to Rome? Probably not. Paul got a government-funded trip. Um, So it was great. The government even paid for it. Um, And you talk about arrest. Uh, How does two years sound? But during that two-year house imprisonment, Paul said in the letters that he wrote that God is using this for good because through my imprisonment, all the Praetorian guard and all the way up into the household of Caesar are hearing the gospel. Can you rejoice in God's providence? Even when he takes you down a path you weren't expecting? Was Paul delivered from the Jews? He was, by way of the Roman authorities. Was he delivered ultimately to Rome? Yes, he was, and by way of legal appeals and many hardships along the way. But while he was there in God's kind providence, in the extended rest that God gives to Paul, he also, through the power of the Holy Spirit, leaves us all with what? Four letters, the epistles that he wrote. What a beautiful, kind, gracious providence. And it's always at work, and it always will be until the day when he calls you home. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this beautiful example of a faithful brother who was willing to pay the price in obedience to the calling A man who loved the gospel, who believed in sovereignty of God, and who loved his church. Lord, I pray that we would be counted faithful until the end and to embrace whatever comes our way through your kind providence whether we can fully understand it or not, knowing that even on our best days when we think we do, we likely don't. Lord, may you show us the difference between prophecy and providence. May you comfort the hearts of those who are distressed over world affairs right now. May you protect those who are being led astray by false teaching upon this regard, that they would have their minds protected That in the same way we care for our bodies by limiting what we put in it, may we care for our minds by being discerning about what goes in it. And may you receive all the glory and honor as your church, your bride, your body seeks first your kingdom, knowing that all else that we need will be added to us in good time. For it is in your name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen.